0: So, I'd see people looking at a zine and being like, "Oh, can I make something like this for class?" And I was like, "Sure, let me help you out." Yeah. Or or people would donate zines that they made for class or people would say, Oh wow, I I've never felt represented. Mm-hmm. Either people would say at Brown before this, or people would say in publishing yeah. before. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or in the in media before. Yeah. So that that felt that made a lot of the hard work and the, the tears and the <laughs> sweat and the, all the drama and all the other stuff worth it when I I'd hear those types of things or, or that a zine had completely changed their mind about a particular subject.
1: Drawing a Dialogue Presents episode two. Here on Drawing a Dialogue Presents we interview comics educators, academics, historians, and anyone else involved in comic scholarship. My name is E Jackson and I'm a cartoonist and scholar. My co-host, Kathy G. Johnson, uh, will be present with us for the interview, um, but she's in the middle of moving right now, so I am kind of taking on the intro solo. So today we're interviewing Milana Krongelb, zine archivist and curator and founder of Brown University's Zine Collection. Milana is a current student at Brown University, and she founded the Zine Collection in 2016. I actually uh, first had the opportunity to visit the zine collection while I was in the process of applying to graduate school. It's housed in the Sarah Doyle Women's Center at Brown, which is accessible to the public. And um, when I first saw it, it just struck me as such a like wonderfully and sensitively uh, curated collection that I knew that I wanted to speak to the founder of it. Um, so I'm really glad that we had the opportunity to sit down with Milana uh, before I moved out of Providence. So we were fortunate enough to be able to record the interview in the Sarah Doyle Women's Center, actually in the room that houses the zine collection. So that's sort of where we start the interview. And I think it's a pretty, I think it's a really interesting conversation. Um, We talk about Milana's decisions with the zine collection, uh, her relationship to zines, the importance of zines in general, and uh, zine activism and archival. So I don't want to keep us waiting any longer. So let's just get right into it.
2: Um, Hi, I'm E. Hi, I'm Kathy. Hi, I'm Milana. <laughs> <laughs> that way um, our listeners know whose voice is whose. <laughs> yes, that's probably a good idea. Yeah. Hello, Milana. Thank you for inviting us. Can you tell us more about the room that we're in right now?
0: Yeah. So we are upstairs in the Sarah Doyle Women's Center where the zine collection is part of the zine collection. Yeah. 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 And the other part is Uh, the other part is currently at the Pembroke Center for Research and Teaching on Women. But in a few weeks, I believe it will uh, be moved to the John Hay Library. Oh, very cool. Which yeah. is a part of Brown University, which is part of Brown University. And it is publicly accessible. Both the Sarah Doyle oh, and awesome. the John Hay are publicly accessible, which was really at the top of my list.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. So we're going to start by kind of talking about how you kind of got to where you are now. Um, so growing up, how did your
0: community influence you? I grew up in the middle of nowhere. Um, <laughs> and so my parents got divorced when I was really little, like when I was two or three Mm -hmm. Uh, and my mom is black and my dad is white. My mom is Christian and my dad is Jewish. Um, (laughs) They come from different class backgrounds. Mm -hmm. They don't like the same type of music. Um, My mom's an extrovert. My dad's an introvert. Like (laughs) they like different food. I don't, they, I I guess they were married. Um, So, (laughs) uh, and and then eventually my mom got remarried and that was a whole difference to my stepdad, Mr. John. Hi, Mr. John. If you listen to this eventually, <laughs> uh, also hi parents. So I guess I, from a very young age, I was used to feeling difference and recognizing difference mm-hmm. and um, being able to navigate different spaces. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, especially because I was almost always the only black kid in school and always felt like an outsider in a lot of ways Yeah, and even though now that I have grown into my identities a lot more I recognize both my kind of in between privileges and, and mm-hmm. oppressions because mm-hmm. I'm a black woman but I'm also very light skinned. I'm a woman but I'm a cis woman. I'm bisexual but I'm in a heteropresenting relationship. Also I'm disabled but I present as able-bodied. So I think it gave me a real insider look into a lot of different types of oppression that I could use to really make an intersectional zine collection and always, always look at how different people were being left out and then leverage my different privileges within those identities to help other people more marginalized than myself.
1: Um, And when you were younger, what relationship did you have to like books and like different types of publishing and things?
0: I really love to read. my My mom always took me to the playground and to the library. And I was an only child. Oh yeah, <laughs> that, yep, yep. I guess that explains it all. <laughs> Don't have friends. Never mind. I can have fictional ones. So my mom actually had to kick me out the house because I was reading so much. She was like, "Go." Play. Play Milana.
1: (laughs) Oh, that's a very familiar story.
0: (laughs) And I I played a lot of sports, but I guess books ended up being my sport when (laughs) eventually... (laughs) Uh, sad sad story of my life i tried so hard not to be a geek and here i am as a librarian yeah Uh,
1: you can't like you you can't get pulled into it you can't resist it (laughs) you can't
0: escape what you are (laughs) yeah but i i read voraciously did you ever consider making your own books No, (laughs) no, I I really never thought about being a writer. I came across a journal when I was cleaning out my closet not too long ago that said, I can't stand mom. She's so mean to me, but I guess I was being mean to her. So I still love her. She was right. (laughs) So that, <laughs> so that that was the extent of my writing. I was, you know, I was never super into writing. I guess I tried to write poetry. Looking back, it was like really angsty, like Ugh, nobody understands me. in my second grade self, <laughs> it was really, it was not that serious. It was not that deep. Um, yeah. I, so I just, I would much rather read than write, even still, Mm -hmm. I... I like to think that I could be some famous Octavia Butler status (laughs) writer, but it ain't gonna happen. Um, It's good to have those high
1: ideals, though. Like,
0: yeah, future self, if you listen to this and you're like, you are wrong. Please, please, I, I hope, I hope I'm projecting good vibes into the future, but I don't, I don't know. (laughs) So you're a student at Brown. What
1: brought you to Brown in the program that you're in? And what is the program that you're in? So I'm in ethnic studies.
0: Mm. LOL. I was such a different person (laughs) when I came to Brown. (laughs) I was a little bit in the sunken place (laughs) when I was a senior in high school. Mm -hmm. So I came here for international relations. Mm. Okay. (sighs) Why did I do that? (laughs) I was really into Model UN once again question mark Um, but but looking back I kind of see it but I thought I would like the Watson Center because it was like this big thing that like seemed good on the website Mm -hmm. um and then within a week of coming here I dropped international relations oh my gosh Uh, So I was actually in between choosing here and the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown, which is the polar opposites of Brown interest. Literally the (laughs) polar opposite. Yeah. Like you have nonstop requirements. Mm. It's conservative religious school Mm -hmm. and I chose a school with no requirements that's really liberal so I don't know (laughs) what I was thinking but but I think I chose right for me personally and here I am I I thought I was going to be like history because I've always been a history buff that's another thing like even when I was little I would read as much history Mm -hmm. as possible once again you cannot escape your your dumb, it will follow you it will it, it will. will follow you so i thought like maybe i'd be a history major but then i was like skirt this is a really racist department mm-hmm. and uh-huh. so then i ended up going to africana studies but wasn't so about that because i'm a disabled student and mm. though those classes some of those professors are trifling like that's a lot of work <laughs> that's a, a lot yeah. a lot of work yeah. and like there's also like it's it's very masculine at Mm -hmm. times It's not like as queer as i would like so i was like peace out africana studies i love you you help me but um i'm gonna move over to ethnic studies so that's where i'm at now so
1: within ethnic studies what's your like field of focus
0: i think technically on the sheet it says that it's like black identities, queerness, and art. Basically, I just took what I wanted and tried to put it into a major. I swooped in right before they changed the requirements for okay. ethnic studies. So literally the last semester, right, I, I swooped in like it was a DM. like, <laughs> And I was there and I was like, okay, if I wait another semester, and I really was not in the mood to write this boring application to switch concentrations. But I was like, you know what? Girl, you can do it. You, you got to do it now or you're going to have to take a bunch more classes, more structure, everything. So I did it and I have freedom. I really love the faculty too. I think it's a pretty modern department in terms of the work cool. that they're doing. I really love learning about critical race theory. And mm-hmm. I felt like in terms of departments at Brown, ethnic studies and American studies, which is very closely related, is doing some of the most critical work around gender gender queerness race immigration etc so that's where I wanted to be yeah 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 Yeah.
1: super cool all All right. right so let's talk about zines now um how and when did you first sort of learn about zines and uh what they are
0: so I had never heard of zines before I came to Brown Mm-hmm. But I was part of this on campus feminist magazine called Blue Sockings, mm-hmm. which is still up and running. Check out the website because yeah. they're still my loves. <laughs> they're lo- my love. Shout out, shout out. So I was part of that my freshman year through last year. So mm-hmm. four years. And the beginning of my second semester of freshman year, I was sexually harassed by this really creepy old grad student mm-hmm. and right. Yeah, right at the beginning of that semester. And I ended up going through the university hearing process and it was incredibly messed up and mm-hmm. traumatic and at the same time there was title nine activism going on throughout the country there was a title nine investigation of brown and a lot yeah. of other universities and i i really could not escape that it was just a part of everyone's life mm-hmm. here at yeah. that at that moment so blue stockings did a zine which this was the first time that i had heard of a zine mm-hmm. called silence plus voice yeah. that was uh compilation of a lot of people's experiences around sexual assault at Brown. Mm -hmm. Uh, I helped make the physical zine and it was the first time that I felt heard. Yeah. uh, Mm. And I really felt that, oh wow, I need to think about this medium. I need to think about zines because this, this is really my step towards healing. Like this was the first step I had taken towards healing. Right. So I went home over the summer and came back the next semester and was able to hand a copy of the zine to president Paxson at a sexual assault task force meeting Mm -hmm. and then talk about all the messed up crap, (laughs) which the university had put me through. And I felt like not only was the zine emblematic of my healing process and kind of this, this arc Mm-hmm. But also it was this physical object that uh, not it it represented all of these stories together. Yeah. Which made them sh- them stronger. Like yeah. we came together. Yeah. Um, but also that it could not be erased because it was physical.
1: So what was it? Do you think about that like process of making it? Was it just the physicality or like what was it in the actual zine making process that made it feel so healing? Do you think?
0: Mm. So I think part of it was the actual physical process. Right. I think it was that I was with a group of people who I knew but hadn't known on a real intimate level. Mm-hmm. But we were dealing with this difficult subject together. Right. And it allowed me to provide voice for other people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't necessarily have to talk about my own experience. I often had been contacted over the course of the semester to anonymously talk about what I was going through for different publications. Mm -hmm. And I was really exhausted by that. Right. Um, Right. And I had severe activist burnout. Yeah. Even though I, I mean, I just had general PTSD, but I I was helping other people get their story out yeah. who had chosen to put their story out there. And that felt really liberating. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. So like being able to assist in other people sharing their voices is so it's not the focus is less on you and being able to build a community around this.
0: (laughs) No, no. Yeah, yeah, exactly what you're saying there. I felt held that Mm -hmm. there, there was a, a sense of community there that allowed me to not feel so isolated. Yeah. And even, even though I did have my friends that supported me and my partner, um, and who were still together like four plus years later. Yeah. Um, it was still just a very lonely experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even the fact that I just stayed in my room a lot um, and didn't really want to go out. So it felt real, real freeing, really freeing. Great. Awesome.
2: So sort of what led you to building the zine
0: collection? So after that whole thing with the sexual assault task force, Mm -hmm. uh, like a week plus later, I totally unrelated, got, a concussion oh Ooh, wow <laughs> yeah so <laughs> <laughs> surprise uh <laughs> and and i went on leave mm-hmm. from the university for a year so i was really depressed because i couldn't do anything i was pretty much on bed rest right, for right. months and for a while the thing that got me through was just collaging cuz I couldn't I couldn't watch TV for a while. Mm-hmm. I couldn't do much. So, I mean, I probably shouldn't have been collaging as much as I was. <laughs> but still, I needed I needed it to to not lose my mind. Yeah, yeah. And cuz I was I was like in a dark room for a month. Right. So, I I needed it. <laughs> so, it, it was it was rough. So, I once again needed this outlet for a a very different type of trauma. Right. And so I was away from the university and I still had to finish classes because Lord knows there are always classes to finish. (laughs) (laughs) And So one of the classes was for Gail Cohey, who Mm -hmm. is Dean of the Sarah Doyle Women's Center Mm -hmm. and who I love very dearly. And she, she and I were talking and I was like, "So what if I started this Zine collection yeah, for yeah. the Sarah Doyle?" And she was like, "Sure."
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, you were on leave. You presented the idea. Yeah.
0: Oh, okay. Uh, I mean, looking back, I'm like, why would she say no? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so my final was writing this grant application. Okay. And I started me. i once I was feeling a little bit better, of which was not until like. August and I got concussed in November. I ended up meeting with the Zine Librarian at Vassar, and okay. they had a fairly new uh, Zine collection. And I started emailing different people, like seeing if this was a possibility. And then, like, I tried to apply, and they were like, "Students on on leave like can't apply." And I'm like, oh. "Like." why why not why not so I got I got my application in and I I was like ready to go back to school and then I applied and I got denied Mm. and it was just like really heartbreaking after all this hard work and everything And then I, I applied again and I got accepted and I was like, (laughs) I I made it, I made it. Uh, And then I, I kept applying to different grants and I kept getting accepted and I kept asking people and just hustling, 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 hustling. And I started to buy zines and started to see people's reactions. Yeah. And it, it was, uh, a Rolling Stone. Yeah. So I'd see people looking at a zine and being like, "Oh, can I make something like this for class?" And I was like, "Sure, let me help you out." Yeah. Or or people would donate zines that they made for class. Or people would say, "Oh wow, I I've never felt represented." Mm-hmm. Either people would say at Brown before this, or people would say in publishing yeah. before, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. or in the in media before, yeah. So that that felt that made a lot of the hard work and the, the tears and the <laughs> sweat and the, all the drama and all the other stuff worth it. When I I'd hear those types of things or, or that a zine had completely changed their mind about a particular subject. Yeah, it was so validating, but also like wow, this is actually what I wanted to happen um, or to see little communities build around zine making. Cool.
1: Yeah, cool. And it seems like community building is sort of like an important part of like your practice, right? Like that sort of seems like what you're motivated by in a lot of ways.
0: I would hope so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, okay. but also, I think that's an important part of zines. Like mm-hmm. I, I have felt so much love and support through zine making. Like I would not have been able to do this without the million bajillion zinesters and zine librarians and et cetera, et cetera, who reached out to me or I reached out to them and they gave so much time and energy to me when I like asked them a million and one questions about like how... (laughs) the hell do I do this or like when I had next to no funding which I mean to be honest I still have next to no no funding so if if you're looking to donate some z's or some money hit me up but but when I really had no funding I'd be like is there anything you can donate mm-hmm. um and and now I feel some kind of like I don't ask zine straight up if yeah. you can donate because I want to compensate people for their labor, mm-hmm. which I feel pretty strongly about academic institutions with zine collections, not asking
2: yeah. for yeah.
0: donations. But I was in a little bit of a different position because mm-hmm. I, I was kind of an individual yeah. doing this. I'm, I wasn't institutionally supported.
2: Are you connected to the Brown University like library system
0: or I am through the Pembroke Center. Right? Okay. So but that's half of the collection and they don't do purchases. Okay. Yeah. So they were able to purchase some to make up for the for doubles because um once we decided to start archiving, then there just needed to be like a whole bunch oh, of doubles. So, mm-hmm. so you um, have
2: you have um sort of the public ones to read and then you have an archive of the same copy.
0: In theory. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Actually, I'll get back to that in a sec. But (laughs) uh, so the collection officially opened in the beginning of 2017. And there I met Mary Murphy, who's the archivist at Pembroke. Right. And she was like, this is really great. Would this be something you're interested in archiving? I was like, as a matter of fact, (laughs) yes. So I think it's really important to have something that's very publicly accessible, mm-hmm. like the Sarah Doyle, that has always functioned as a type of community center. Even though it is located at Brown, I think one of the things that the Sarah Doyle does best is really uh, not closing itself off from non-Brown affiliated people. Mm. Cool. And then the there's the Pembroke Center collection, which will be archivally preserved also in a publicly accessible space so right. but it is, it does have that kind of academic feel
1: yeah yeah I was gonna ask what sort of um, challenges have you encountered uh, like creating this like archive of scenes within this like academic setting?
0: So I just mostly didn't care about the rules and regulations (laughs) because I was like, wow, these rules and regulations are mostly very problematic. So for people who may or may not know, Library of Congress terms are the terms that librarians writ large use, mm-hmm. but they are terrible and incredibly outdated. <laughs> the The one positive is that everyone uses them. So they're very easy to search. So unlike the overarching scope, mm-hmm. um, there's like a list of library of Congress terms. So if someone was searching for the collection with LOC terms, then they could find it. But I just didn't use them for the collection. <laughs> um, I like I'm trying to think of some egregious examples. I mean their language around immigration like they mm-hmm. use alien Ooh. uh which is <laughs> gross. Right. Um I mean their language around trans people is like grossly outdated. Mm-hmm. Uh Etc. Etc. So mm-hmm. I was just like, "Well, screw that. Uh, <laughs> I'm not doing that." So I just used activisty language because yeah. that's what's reflected in the zines. So I'm yeah. I'm going, you know, mirror language. That's that's like a common thing to do. So yeah. another thing that I did was I wrote the scope note for the collection in the first person. Mm, interesting. So what's a scope note? So a scope note basically says what is in the collection and what the collection's about. Okay. And but usually it's it's very distant third person academic. <laughs> right. right? Yeah. And once again, I was like, all these zines are not about the Third person, distant, mm, academic, and yeah. I was. I'm a zine star archivist and curator on this collection. Like, there's no separating who I am from right. the creation of this thing. So I wrote using I, and very much using emotion. <laughs> and what a concept! And <laughs> and it was it was not unbiased, but nothing's unbiased. Yeah, yeah. and yeah and also talked about how putting the zines in the cl- like I'm I'm not just doing this for um brown to add like diversity credit yeah right? yes yeah, right um because you know 10 years down the line when Brown may or may not use this and be like, oh, by the way, we have the zine collection. See, we 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 do include trans people. We do include people of color in our collections. I'm, I'm going to be like, uh, once again, one of your queer POC students did all of that work. Yeah, right. Yeah. And I don't want you to capitalize on it without making substantive change.
1: Yeah, right. Yep awesome yeah um and how did you approach like when did you start approaching zinesters like where do you approach them how did you start building out the collection
0: yeah etsy <laughs> that's
1: really good that's a good one
0: <laughs> etsy is so addicting i don't even know how to... my ocd definitely l- Really kicked in. Like I have so many organized lists, lists on Etsy, like different types of zine. Like it's it's really a problem. Actually, like I've lost a lot of sleep over just oh I can add. One. Never mind. You don't need you don't need to know my bad habits. But <laughs> but but in any case, one great feature about Etsy besides the fact that it allows people to sell their crafts is that you can direct message people. So mm. I just direct messaged a bunch of people or I uh, say once I messaged them, do you know anyone else I should be looking out for? Do you, yeah. know, do you know any good librarians? Do you know any good zinesters I should talk to, et cetera? So it, um, the network kind of spread. I haven't gone to a lot of zine fests mm-hmm. just because I am in school. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but Ripe Expo. Yeah. Right? Uh, I went and I networked with a bunch of people there. Awesome. That's great. And with building it out, did
1: you have any like goals in mind for like the type of zines you wanted to acquire or were you just sort of like grabbing whatever you could find?
0: Mm. So I think this is kind of a complicated question, actually. Mm -hmm. So I think I learned a lot as I went on and my scope got a little like narrower and narrower. Mm -hmm. The overarching theme is marginalized identities and social justice, activism. Mm -hmm. I think it could also be considered to be about gender and sexuality. Mm -hmm. I think when I first got money, I had never had that much money in my account. (laughs) So I bought some zines I probably shouldn't have and have since weeded those out. Mm. Okay. But I have, I now curate better than I did then. And what's your like process for curating? I think it's definitely shifted since, um, since I started working with Pembroke. Because before, it really was focused on what would be useful for students. Okay. Which is still very much the case. Um, Students are people who generally use the center. Yeah, yeah. But since then, it has also shifted to what do I think is going to disappear? What do I think in however many years is going to be valuable for researchers, for people looking back historically so, I think there's a balance there, so something like a zine on no Dapple is really important now, but mm-hmm. also will be really important years from now, yeah, uh, whereas a zine on teaching good consent is really important for a student or someone but not necessarily as important for the archive, right okay,
1: I see. like that subject yep. will still sort of be relevant.
0: Yeah, I'm always always trying to get stuff that I think is going to disappear, which mm-hmm. almost always is zines by people of color. Mm-hmm. Bec- and I've actually seen Brown Recluse Zine Distro, and I'm forgetting the name of the other main POC distro that was operating when I started. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been kind of in and out after Trump uh, mm. because of the effect on people's lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's definitely had an effect on zine culture. Yeah. Um, and accessibility of zines where I don't really see the same effect on zines produced by white zinesters. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, also zines by trans zinesters mm-hmm. also, um, and per- particularly trans zinesters of color, disappear yeah. remarkably quickly I've, I've definitely seen that trend that you're referring to yeah and i i think that's part of the reason why the archives are so important because yeah. that history gets lost because yeah because that's part of queer reproduction right so if these people are uh either not literally having kids or not alive or not able to um pass down knowledge for whatever reason or excluded from other types of archives or publishing or or whatever Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. then that just gets lost like really really quickly especially when people don't have the money to make 500 copies of a zine so it's especially important to me to get zines by queer and trans people of color absolutely no i think that's really important yeah
2: so um i think you've sort of covered this but what do you want people to gain from the zine collection
0: i mean first and foremost i want people to enjoy it (laughs) that's important
2: that's very important yeah
0: (laughs) i mean I I want people to use it and Mm -hmm. I think my biggest complaint is that the space that we're in right now is not physically accessible Mm. but I will say that anyone working the front desk can bring down stuff yeah just throwing that out there
2: but Um, no absolutely yeah (laughs) absolutely Um,
0: (laughs) especially as like a disability activist unfortunately there's nothing like I can do about it right now but yeah yeah so that's part of the reason why I included zines. Like there's a Prince fan zine yeah, or, yeah. or zines about cats. Cause, Cause like a lot of the zines are really heavy. Yeah. So I think I want people to learn and take inspiration for their activism to learn about themselves, mm-hmm. but also to learn about other people, to build community through reading zines, through making zines, but also to learn how to build community through what they, right. what they read yeah. Um, or how their mind gets changed, but also like to have fun because, because zines are fun.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think there is sort of a dearth of like joy from underrepresented communities. A lot of the times where we don't get to preserve our like fun, you know, like it's always, always the tragedies and not like the fun stuff we're doing.
2: Yeah. There's a,
0: there's a lot of joy yeah, and and the i there's a lot of hard stuff too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But there's also a lot of joy. So i I want people to be able to see themselves represented, and if they don't see themselves represented, to question why. Yeah. and because zines are so accessible, to make themselves represented.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, definitely. How does the zine library play into your future plans?
0: Ah so I've I've taught about a bajillion zine workshops at this point. Cool. Awesome. Which I really love to do. Everyone tells me, Milana, you're gonna become a librarian long term, and I'm (laughs) fighting it. But you, you will become what you are. (laughs) Uh, Stop
1: being a geek. Librarians are really cool, though. I'm a big (laughs)
0: fan of librarians. I mean, I have, I have the glasses (laughs) and everything, so I probably will end up being some sort of librarian eventually, (laughs) despite like all my middle school fears. So, but I, I definitely want to do something more directly with people mm-hmm. um, yeah. before I do that. I also am dreading going back to school for library school.
2: Uh, oh, yeah. like at the MLA. So uh, yeah. uh, MLS, 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 MLS uh, citation. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Where have you taught like workshops, like part of Brown University or have you traveled? Mm-hmm.
0: So I get asked all the time to teach workshops here, mm-hmm. uh, not just for Brown students. I've taught for teenagers. I've, I've taught a, a lot of different zine workshops. I oh. also taught last summer at a camp.
2: Ooh. Yeah.
0: yeah, so my babies.
1: Cool. Um, How do you think that um, activism will continue to influence your life?
0: I don't think it can not. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's very yeah. much who I am. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think my personal problem is trying to separate out a space for myself. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I am such a passionate person and I mm-hmm. love learning and a lot of my hobbies are also activist related like like <laughs> zines for example. Yeah. yeah. Or even I, I'm a big music buff but I, my brain doesn't start or it doesn't stop turning. Mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. um, That's why I'm, I'm really grateful for Janelle Monet. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> Pray, praise her just so fantastic I, like I'm literally tearing up right now but, um, I understand yeah anyway um, so hopefully I can find more dirty computers in my life yes yeah. So
1: <laughs> oh, I was going to ask you, cause I thought it was really interesting. I know like you've written before about like collage and zines as being like a form of healing and self-care. And I was wondering um, if you could talk like a little bit to that. Like, how do you view zines as like a form of self-care?
0: Yeah. So I think the general process of making a zine can be very cathartic Mm -hmm. and healing because you can write whatever you want in them. Also, I think zines are one of the few mediums available to us today that can be completely free of surveillance.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah.
0: So I think especially for communities that are heavily surveilled Mm -hmm. um, or, for example, for um, someone who is questioning their gender and wants to use a different name or try that out, something like that. Zines can be really healing and Mm -hmm. and a a really important space to to play. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, for me personally, I said this before, how much how important the self-care aspect when I was first introduced to zines, how Mm -hmm. important it was. So yeah, I, th- I think it's really boundless yeah. um, and a lot of zinesters frequently talk about how important that aspect of it is. A lot of zine, per zines in particular, personal zines read as kind of diary entries, yeah. Yeah. Um, but that you get to share with people. And the, of course, like the community aspect to it. Mm-hmm. I do think sometimes people can get caught up in zine making yeah. where it becomes <laughs> another chore or another mm-hmm. thing where they feel pressure around. Yeah. And that's when you need to take a step back or something. <laughs> There's a, a zine over there over there being like in the boxes with the zines (laughs) because you can't see me pointing right now Uh, that that self-care tips for zine series at zine fest Mm -hmm. and I I think part of that is it's like drinking water Mm -hmm. or making sure you have something to eat things like that that some sometimes there's a hustle that goes along with independent publishing Mm -hmm. if you actually choose to sell and it's it's not just leaving it at a coffee shop yeah. So I think there's this balance between self-care and and when capitalism enters it, yep. then, <laughs> you know, there, there, there you go.
2: <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah.
1: Thank you so much. Um, is there anything that you want us to plug or that you want to plug? Please come visit.
0: <laughs> I mean, I feel like this whole thing was a plug. Yeah, Basically. Yeah, But also, I just want to plug this podcast. And I, I don't thank know. You. But, thank but you. y'all are great. I had so much fun. Oh, thank so you. thank you. Thank you so much. And um, for anyone listening, please feel free to reach out to me anytime. I am very open to questions. I also know I'm the librarian at the Sarah Doyle. That's another... <laughs>
2: Um, so where, where is the, what's the address for Sarah Doyle? Ah, it's 26 Benevolent Street.
0: I should know that because I have to write it on
2: Providence, Rhode (laughs) Island.
0: Yeah, 26 Benevolent Street. Okay. Mm -hmm. So things I should know Uh, off the top of my head. And And if you want, you you can give
1: your email or anything. Yeah. So
0: Milana, M-A-L-A-N-A, Krungel, K-R-O-N-G-E-L-B at gmail.com or... My first name underscore last name at brown e d u okay also yeah. at twitter <laughs> um at Milana's Queendom. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Perfect. Yes.
2: Um, and then we always wrap up drawing a dialogue with the question, uh, what are you
0: reading? I just finished, actually, I didn't just finish it. I should have just finished other books. So <laughs> please, please, Maj, don't be listening to this. <laughs> um, by Skim. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Which is really good. Um. Oh, I really want to read. I haven't started reading it, but I really want to read Body Minds Reimagined by Sammy Shulk. Um, I haven't actually been reading a lot of zines lately because mm. it's finals time. Yep. Yeah. So I will let you know what zines I pick up next. <laughs> um, I have read maybe thousands of zines, though. So hit me up for recommendations. Yeah.
1: <laughs> So that was episode two of Drawing a Dialogue Presents. Thank you again to Milana for sitting down with us and talking with us. Um, You can get more Drawing a Dialogue at drawingadialogue.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at Draw a Dialogue. Thank you to the Downtown Boys for the use of their song, Wave of History, off the album Full Communism. Uh, Since Kathy's not here, I'll sign up for us. So farewell to our intrepid volunteers. Um,